Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am Dr. Alicia Buetes. And I'm Jacob Shackman. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you learn something new. Today we are speaking to Danielle Pretorius. She has a PhD in biomedical engineering at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. She worked with Dr. Jay Zung on fabricating cardiac tissue patches from human-induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cells. Danielle was also a chemical engineering student at Stellenbosch University, so it was lovely to catch up with her and hear more about her research overseas. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you liked it, please subscribe and share this episode around. Um, it will mean the world to us, and we are very grateful for your support. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. Uh, that is, you are Dr. Danielle Pretorius Berryhill, right? You are now a doctor, or not yet? Not yet, in six weeks. So, uh, fingers crossed. Uh, I was supposed to graduate in December, but with COVID and everything, everything got postponed a bit. So uh, graduating at the end of this semester, but yes. Well, yes. congratulations, because I know it's going to be an amazing event once it happens. And it's worth waiting for, so don't worry about it. Absolutely. Uh, and you've, you so I've already, um, you've told me that you have a, you had a few postdoc interviews lined up. I don't know if you're allowed to talk about that. Um, there's a lot of students out there that's in the same position that you are now seeking for other opportunities and doing interviews and that is very stressful and you seem like the very like a relaxed type of person so I was wondering if you can give tips to students sure um, for for me at least um, I just try to um, in terms of my experience and applying for jobs and postdoc opportunities I just try to apply to as many opportunities that like fired my jets as possible. Ah, okay. um, and um, the other thing was uh, networking opportunities. Uh, I think it's very important throughout your graduate and even undergraduate studies to try and network as much as possible. And I know it's like really awkward for some people. I mean, I'm an engineer uh, by trade, so we're kind of reclusive and, you know, <laughs> we, we do have a reputation of being the recluses on campus, but you do have to put yourself out there as much as possible and, and try to develop that part of your uh, uh, persona um, as much as possible because you never know when um, an opportunity will come along and and when it might just open up like a door whether it's a meeting or a luncheon that say your department uh, hosts with some visiting professor anything like that I think you just need to put yourself out there as much as possible mm. you shouldn't be afraid to um, introduce yourself to people because uh, it's like uh, for me also to get into the mindset of approaching people who are 
these really, really high up professors and people in industry, it's kind of intimidating going to them and being like, hi, I'm this person, I'm graduating, you don't know me at all, I know everything about you and I think you're awesome and I want to work for you. So I think, I think it's very important to, to put yourself out there. Um, just, you know, the worst someone can say is no. Um, and, and it's, it is kind of, it's, it's not the best experience ever to, to have someone say no to you, especially if you've put yourself mm -hmm. out there. But I, I also firmly believe that, uh, the opportunity that you should be getting and that's that's kind of meant for you will come along no that's very wise yeah that is very true you can only like play with the probabilities and the like stats as much as possible so apply for as many jobs involve mm -hmm. yourself with as many uh, opportunities as you can so that people know your face and know your name um, because it just makes yeah. it easier because then you'll get it, it's going to be easy for you to get reference letters when when it comes to the point where you have to uh, ask people for reference letters when you when you when you're applying yeah. for jobs so uh, that's that that's that, that was like that's great advice that was something that I, I just tried to do as much as possible another thing that that I found and it's it's completely natural for for any student and any any person to feel like this is it's it's intimidating to talk to anyone who's effectively on the next level of whether it's education mm -hmm. or anything like that who's higher up on the totem pole and you also have to remember that at some point that person was you they also had to go through the pro process <laughs> so they didn't know everything they, they, they had to learn. So, and they're also only human. So they're not as scary and intimidating as they might seem. They, they are there yeah. to help you. It's their job. So you have to mm, approach. And they probably want yes, to help you. Yes. <laughs> you just need to do the first step. You just yeah. have to approach them because a lot amazing. of times they don't know that you need their help. So exactly yeah awesome well thanks for that tips i think there's a lot of researchers out there that will appreciate that um with the whole life changing yeah. decisions that's going on at the moment <laughs> um well we're actually here to talk about um your phd project yes. that you are almost finishing up or you basically finished it up you're just waiting to yes. graduate your article's title is a fabrication and characterization of a thick viable bilayer stem cell derived surrogate for future myocardial tissue regenerations yeah. but you also had a lot of other articles i see that like similar in the topic and it's extremely interesting um subject i have to tell you when i read through it and um, like I wanted to prepare, prepare my questions, I, I was fascinated by it. How did you get into this field, this topic? Uh, what made you interested in this field that you focus on in, in the biomaterials and bioengineering subjects? So I did my bachelor's and master's degrees in uh, chemical engineering at Stellenbosch University 
And uh, during that time, I had a few really great chemistry classes with some professors that you might know. Uh, Dr. Catherine de Villiers and Prof. Delia Haynes. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was, those are some of my favorite classes. And um, then during my final year um, in my undergrad for my honors project, I was really, really fortunate um, to have the opportunity to do um, a research project, which was in collaboration with um, the University of Cape Town's Cardiovascular Research Unit at Grooteskier Hospital. And that was with Dr. Dion Besaidenot, who is the head of, oh, yes. he's the head of their biomaterials research department. And it's, it's amazing how small the world is because I actually met him at an electrospinning conference in 2018. And I approached him because I was also fascinated by the whole electrospinning yeah. and the um, cardiac type of um, subject that he was going into there. Yeah. And um, I almost did a postdoc with him, almost did a postdoc with him. <laughs> but uh, um, I found a job that I was interested in as well. So it was like a, a difficult choice to make. He like has this absolutely open door policy. He, you can ask the most ridiculous questions. Uh, he's this brilliant man. Uh, and as an undergrad, you can go to him and then he'll sit down with you, show you, explain it. He's absolutely phenomenal. Great. And so at that point, I was already a little enamored with materials and polymers and pharmaceuticals because my mom's a pharmacist and yeah, so um, I've I've just always been interested in in more of the the um, medicine side of you know research because of that, and after that research project, I just knew I had to do some type of materials research, bio related bioengineering. Uh, that was just it for me, and with regards to um, biomaterials, at, at the core of it all, I suppose one of the driving forces behind my love of polymer sciences and engineering is the fact that it's an extremely diverse field. And whether you look at people researching the hardcore fundamentals or you go towards the other side of the spectrum where people are more interested in the applications of the materials. There's just always so much to learn and I just find it fascinating. And so I, I just love it. No, it's true. There's like a, a large expanse in this world of material, biomaterials and nanomaterials and polymer materials. I feel like it's, it's a reoccurring subject and that's why this polymer science podcast exists because I feel like it's, in every field, like polymers and all that is in every field Absolutely. and it's a crucial part of everyone's subject. Oh, for sure. Uh, so your PhD uh, study focused on manufacturing biomaterials that contribute to the left ventricular modeling and help treat damaged tissue in patients that experience heart failure. Now, um, what are the issues regarding infarction caused by traumatic cardiac events and diseases? Now, firstly, could you maybe just explain what infarction is? Because that's a, a relatively new term that I don't think non-biological scientists would know. Absolutely. So, uh, someone generally suffers a, a myocardial infarction, uh, which is also known as a heart attack, when 
uh, one or more of the branches of your heart's coronary arteries become inflamed or blocked. And these blockages are usually caused by plaque buildup or blood, blood clots, for example, that can form anywhere else in your circulation system and break off and then subsequently become lodged in your coronary arteries. And the blocked, when, when like the blocked arteries then prevent consistent supply of oxygen rich blood to the muscle tissue of your heart. Um, and this tissue has an exceptionally high oxygen demand. And as soon as it becomes oxygen deprived, um, you have uh, basically instantaneously, you have localized cell death that occurs. Sure. And um, in this case, it's uh, exceptionally detrimental for your heart because your heart has an extremely limited regenerative capacity because of the fact that the cardiac muscle cells, the specifically the contractile cells that make your heart function and pump, which are known as cardiomyocytes, are terminally differentiated. So they're not like your liver cells that can go into another cellular uh, cycle and become like and start proliferating again. So if they become damaged and if they die, you're you're in a bit of trouble. What are the current treatments to combat tissue death and the resultant damages caused by heart failure and lack of blood supply? Uh combating tissue death is a little tricky. Um but the optimal treatment for someone who's had a heart attack, depending on ha how extensive the cardiac damage has been, is generally a heart transplant. But un unfortunately, uh, because of the limited number of uh, donor organs that you have available, um, there are only, only each year about three and a half to 4,000 heart transplants wow. that are done. And, and that's around the world. And so about 2,000 of those are done in the US. Um, so as an alternative to a heart transplant, basically like a temporary fix, uh, there are th therapies or um, approaches like reperfusion therapy, um, whether that's um, therapeutic or mechanical. And the basic, basically the primary objective of reperfusion therapy is to restore the blood flow right. to the damaged tissue. So you can get like a, a coronary stent placed, for example. If you, if you have like a blocked coronary artery, you can get a stent placed. Um, you still obviously have damage to that area and it's never going to completely regenerate, but you still then get blood flow. Yeah to the area and it's not going to completely die. Um, alt alternatively, if it, if you've already suffered some damage and, and your, your physician or surgeon decides that it's, it's, um, more beneficial for you to potentially get a coronary bypass surgery, that's also, um, an option mm -hmm. where they basically use one of, uh, they, they harvest um, an artery from somewhere else in your body, or they can use uh, a synthetic 
archery graft, like the ones that they make at UCT. Yes. And then place place that between your aorta and the damaged area to basically get fresh blood flow to to that area and basic what that would be is basically like a bridge to to the rest of your heart wow that's fascinating to to supply it with some blood and then uh, for patients who are in end-stage heart failure you get um, mechanical uh, and electrical stimulation devices like left ventricular assist devices um, but none of these approaches are really uh, the ideal because it's not a permanent oh, I fix. I see. All right. If, and is it are these um, methods invasive in any way, or are they or are there some of them that are? Yes. Um, pretty much, pretty much all of these approaches would be considered relatively invasive, aside, from, except if you're. Um, if if you say you catch potential heart damage um, before you maybe have a heart attack, if you if you go to your doctor, go for a checkup, and they find that okay, you're you have really high cholesterol, or you may have some arterial blockage, but it's not bad mm-hmm. enough to where you may need like invasive surgery. They might try to. Um, rectify it with medication like beta blockers for example but that's still something that you very likely will be on for Mm. the rest of your life yeah so um, what was your group's approach to contribute to contributing to a solution for this issue this infarction issue so um, as I mentioned the ideal solution would be having a heart transplant, but still in that case, you potentially risk dealing with immune rejection, for example, because you're putting someone else's heart Mm -hmm. in your chest. Um, Alternatively, the theoretical academic ideal would be if we were able to grow or make a whole heart or a whole organ for a patient that needs it oh, wow. uh, from their own cells um, because that would skirt um, a lot of the issues that we face with genetic matching um, and potential immune rejection because even if someone has the opportunity to get a heart transplant they need to be usually matched with their donor in terms of certain genetic factors. So that's what also limits, aside from organ availability, um, also potential uh, heart transplant um, recipients, is the fact that you need to be matched with a potential donor because of the fact that you want to limit the immune rejection as much as possible. Um, But unfortunately, we're not... quite at the point where we can just make a whole organ for someone yeah, yet. Hopefully but soon, but <laughs> soon, right? I know there I know at this point um researchers in Israel uh like three D printed a, a heart like replicate that was about one and a half centimeters long with like four little chambers. So we're we're getting there. 
but um, at this point we're able to make cardiac tissue patches which are uh, effectively like band-aids for the heart if you can think about it like that and I use that um, that comparison because you can think of it uh, having two really major functions firstly when uh, someone has a heart attack and uh, their functional muscle cell die, uh, the body does rally in quite an amazing way and it forms a piece of scar tissue where the, the cells have died, just like any piece of, uh, like any wound would heal mm -hmm. in your body. You form scar tissue. But the, the problem with scar tissue is that it's less elastic uh, than your healthy yeah, native yeah. cardiac tissue. And so that leads to a disproportionate distribution of stress in the heart oh, wall nice. when it's beating. And that eventually leads to heart thinning because of increased pressure to this non-elastic piece of tissue, it eventually thins. And so we can help support the heart by putting this effective, oh, wow. effectively, like I said, a band-aid on it to support it. And secondly, we can also load these patches with cells, highly f functionalized, uh, differentiated cells to yeah. remuscularize and revascularize this piece of damaged tissue. That's great. Tissue. That's actually my next question. And it's like, how, how did you um, develop these tissue patches? Yeah, and so uh, in a, something that I do need to mention is that our group very specifically works with cells that are derived from human-induced pluripotent stem cells. So pluripotency means that these cells can, when, they're, when they, they don't have any specific fate at the moment, but they have the potential to be differentiated into any cell in your body, any lineage of cell. So whether it's neural or cardiac or uh, something in your skin or your vasculature or your eyeball, these cells can become wow. anything. Um, and further, they're induced pluripotent stem cells. So originally, these cells were derived from somatic cells. So they did not come from, um, they're not embryonic stem cells. Okay. As is usually yes. associated with yeah. the idea of stem cells. So a patient can go and get something as minimally invasive as a skin biopsy. And we can then use those cells and reprogram them with a cocktail, different cocktails of um, small molecules in a very specific uh, regimen and order, and then reprogram them into a, a, a stem cell-like oh, okay. cell. They express all of the factors that are associated with embryonic stem cells, and they have the capacity and capability to be then 
induced and differentiated into any of these other lineages that you find in your body. Amazing. So we can literally take skin cells, uh, give them some uh, specific signaling factors, and then from those induced pluripotent stem cells, we can then make functional cardiac That's cells. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. And so we can then use these cells to generate patient-specific cardiac cells and cardiac tissues. Uh, that skirts, uh, once again, the uh, ethical issues that are, avoid, uh, that are associated with embryonic stem cells. Yeah, that's very true. So There's a lot of controversy that's, that's, about embryonic stem cells. So absolutely. Wow. The tissue patches themselves, uh, is that basically then all uh, biomaterials that is it like uh, natural tissue that's taken from the patient or is there some sort of other materials involved in the making of the tissue patches? Tissue patches are uh, the, scaf the scaffolds that we uh, basically put the, the, the cells that, we're in, that we've differentiated. Uh, the scaffolds that we put the, the cells into are fibrin-based. Oh, right. And so fibrin can also be harvested uh, in a patient-specific way. So they can also be... All of our... Basically, any part of our tissue patch can, in theory, be patient-specific and avoid immune rejection because... Fibrin is basically the blood, the the building block, and it's it's a blood clot, and so your your body makes it by itself already. So if if we know that you need some part of a cardiac patch, or you need one day maybe a, a whole chamber of your heart replaced, you can schedule a, an appointment and start. Harvesting. Basically, <laughs> harvesting your wow. own material, right? And so you wouldn't need to be on immune rejection therapies for the rest of your life, like many transplant patients yes. are. It's really amazing. And, and the fact that we can tailor the mechanical properties of all of these, of mm -hmm. the patches, because fibrin is a biomaterial, it's whether its physical properties are related to its chemistry. And so uh, you can change its physical properties by changing things like concentration, pH, um, the, the salinity of how like, the specific ions that you add as crosslinkers. Um, all of these things can be used to alter the physical properties like elasticity of these patches. And so that's all part of what we can, we, we're busy developing and trying to understand. Um, I must discuss some of your other work that ties in nicely with this topic. Uh, you use nanomaterial uh, formulated with specific chemicals to help with uh, myocardial protection. You managed to reduce the size of harmful infarctions in pig and mouse patients by 20 to 30%, which is, I mean, 
Fascinating. Yes. It's amazing. Uh, you used polylactic co-glycolic acid nanoparticles uh, to allow a slow release of these helpful chemicals in the, effect, in the affected area of the animal patients. Yeah. So uh, we developed and optimized these PLGA nanoparticles, uh, and we used a basic oil and water and water oil water uh, emulsion system where we incorporated small molecule and growth factor uh, specific, uh, specifically because uh, we, in previous studies, we, 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 know, we knew that uh, these factors affected cell differentiation and proliferation. And um, they also worked synergistically and a combination of these substances uh, showed us that it induced specifically cardiomyocyte proliferation. But unfortunately, if you directly inject these, uh, let's call them drugs, uh, into the heart, because it's such a high uh, flow rate system, volumetric flow rate system in a very harsh area or environment, um, these substances are generally very short-lived. And so by embedding them in these nanoparticles um, that allowed for sustained release uh, for around a month, I think if I remember correctly, we were able to get a synergistic effect on the heart and we were able to reduce programmed cell death, which is called apoptosis. And um, because of the small molecule that we added, we saw an accelerated um, effect on the, uh, an accelerated angiogenic effect, which is uh, vessel growth. So we had, we had vascularization in, in our damaged infarcted area. Um, and we had, we also saw proliferation or cell growth of our endothelial cells and our vascular smooth muscle cells all are associated with uh, new vessel formation. And because of that, it um, basically stimulated um, or it, it, it gave the, the heart muscle cells um, the necessary nutrients and oxygen to be able to proliferate and grow and recover. Um, and so the consequence of that was the enhanced uh, myocardial protection um, and re regeneration. That's amazing. <laughs> so fascinating. So just to, okay, so I've also read that you uh, worked with a scaffold-free bioprinter to print cellular spheroids. So I just, firstly, what were these spheroids useful for? That was a lot of fun to work on. Um, so I can absolutely uh, not take credit for the bioprinter design or anything. That was an absolutely brilliant coworker of mine, uh, Dr. Wesley Labarge, who now works at Merck. Uh, he was more of the mechanical um, building like engineer and uh, but if you uh, spheroids specifically are pretty cool little balls of cells 
for lack of a better description. And they're usually less than a micron in diameter. And um, they're extremely useful in modeling cellular interactions. And whether that's, for example, to external factors like pharmaceutical agents, for example, or like stresses that you uh, induce on the system or electrical stimuli, anything like that. Um, and their usefulness obviously depends on how, how they're like right. applied and, and in which system. But uh, if you can imagine a system somewhere between a two-dimensional like cell culture in a dish and something uh, like a larger uh, three-dimensional tissue system. Uh, the cell, like cell spheroids are somewhere in between. So I have to ask, uh, this scaffold-free 3D printer, you, you kind of were in the the novelty of developing this 3D printer, right? I don't think something like this exists, a scaffold-free 3D printer specifically, right? So um, it's actually kind of taken off the idea of using scaffold-free printing. It's kind of really become a, a big deal within the last maybe two years, two, three years, two years maybe. Um, and like I said, I can't take credit for the design of it, but usually 3D printers work on the concept of depositing some sort of bio-ink, which is primarily a cell-laden matrix material like yes. gelatin or yeah, collagen, have, for like example. Said, uh, in the early days where we spoke about bio-ink, and that was also very, very fascinating with Hamza Ashraf, yes. Yeah, but the idea of like, uh, scaffold free printer though is that you stack or arrange uh, in this case cardiac spheroids on an array of microneedles which are spaced closely enough together to allow the cardiomyocyte spheroids to touch and then the cells are so amazing they communicate with one another and then create an extracellular wow. matrix uh, that allows for them to fuse uh, without the need for a scaffold. And so another little cool fact is that the majority of our 3D printer was actually 3D mm -hmm. printed. So <laughs> it was also exceptionally lightweight and low cost. So that was just like a really fun project to work on. I, I can keep talking to you for another hour, but I've already taken up too much of your time. Uh, thank you so much. I think the listeners will find this very, very interesting. I know I have. Um, I appreciate you coming on to the podcast and explaining your work to us. Um, thank you very much once again. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's always so wonderful to to talk to people from from my old stomping grounds and and just talk about science and yeah i i love i love the work that you do and i love like all the pictures that you always post on linkedin <laughs> Thanks so much uh, I, I absolutely love microscopy so <laughs> that's awesome